the book of Deuteronomy, chapter number 6. I appreciate all of our visitors being here. appreciate the good singing. Hope that you'll give the Lord liberty to work and to move this morning. Deuteronomy, chapter number 6. And I'd like to begin reading in verse number 16. Deuteronomy, chapter number 6. And verse number 16, the word of God says, Ye shall not tempt the Lord your God as ye tempted him in Massa. Ye shall diligently keep the commandments of the Lord your God and his testimonies and his statutes which he hath commanded thee. And thou shalt do that which is right and good in the sight of the Lord, that it may be well with thee, and that thou mayest go in and possess the good land which the Lord sware unto thy fathers to cast out all thine enemies from before thee, as the Lord hath spoken. And when thy son asketh thee in time to come, saying, What mean the testimonies and the statutes and the judgments which the Lord our God hath commanded you? Then thou shalt say unto thy son, We were Pharaoh's bondmen in Egypt, and the Lord brought us out of Egypt with a mighty hand. And the Lord showed signs and wonders, great and sore, upon Egypt, upon Pharaoh, and upon all his household before our eyes. And he brought us out from thence, that he might bring us in to give us the land which he sware unto our fathers. Let's read verse 23 once more. Our text is found there. The Bible says, And he brought us out from thence, that he might bring us in to give us the land which he sware unto our fathers. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, Lord, we do thank you for this time that you've given us. We're conscious of the privilege. We're conscious of what it cost heaven that we might gather here this morning. Lord, we're conscious of the precious blood of Christ that's made it possible that we might be knit together in common love and in common fellowship and salvation this morning. All that have been washed by the blood of Christ that we might be able to come together to worship You, to learn of You. Lord, we just praise Your name this morning for Your goodness, for Your greatness, for Your faithfulness, for Your love, for Your mercy, for Your compassion. Oh, God, we'll never praise You enough for who and what You are. I pray if there's any amongst us that are lost and undone that You'd show them their need of Calvary. They'd not leave this building until they find themselves a poor sinner faced with the cross of Calvary, confessing their inability, their weakness, and looking unto your salvation as their only full and free pardon. Father, we pray that you'd cause it to come to pass in the hearts of those that are here this morning, that you would affect that which would give you the most glory. Lord, we love you. We ask all this in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. I want to put a special emphasis on a phrase used in verse 23, and I want to read it to you once more. If you've got your Bible, you see it right there in front of you. The Bible says, And he, speaking of the Lord, brought us out from thence, that he might bring us in to give us the land which he swear unto our fathers. If the Lord will help me for the next few moments, I want to preach to you on the thought that he brought us out to bring us in. Have you ever stopped and thought about why it was that God saved you? Do you know that we have a God of purpose? Nothing that God does is ever incidental or accidental. God has a divine providential purpose for which He accomplishes and does even the smallest of things. And yet many Christians in this day that we live in live as though their life has no purpose. They're just floating along this stream of life that we're living in. Uh, they live like wanderers, like the nation of Israel was for 40 years in the midst of a wilderness, just trying to survive moment to moment, hour to hour, day to day, paycheck to paycheck, tax year to tax year, amen. And they're just trying to survive, it seems, rather than thriving in the way God has intended us to. 
You see, we find as we study the history of the nation of Israel, uh, they were a literal people. They're still a literal people. If you don't believe that, turn on your uh, television set sometimes and look on the news and you'll find out they're very much still a real people in this day that we live in. But we also find that this is a picture and this is a uh, this is a teaching or the Bible word that's used is a type uh, of the Christian life. Uh, when I see the nation of Israel, I see humanity lost in its sin and unrighteousness. When I see Moses, I see a picture of our deliverer, Jesus Christ. When I see the provision... Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm getting ready to preach my message before I even preach it. What I'm saying is that when I see the way that God brought them out of Egypt, I see the way that God brought me out of death. I see what God did in my life. Do you know that, uh, I, I know that for many, many years we've liked to believe that Canaan is a picture of heaven. And, I, and listen, I don't fuss with folks over that. Uh, you know, I mean, why ruin a good gospel song with theology after all? Amen. Uh, you know, I, I don't fuss with folks over things like that. Uh, but if you read your Bible, you'll find it's very clear, it's very plain, that Canaan was never a picture of heaven. Uh, Canaan was a picture of the life that God had intended for His people to live. Do you realize that God has better things than the discouragement and the failure that most Christians face day in and day out? I'm not up here this morning to uh, teach you how you're going to get your next promotion, how you're going to get a better house or a nicer car. I'm not up here to preach to you on those topics this morning. I'm here to preach to you on living the victorious Christian life that God has intended for every one of His children. One thing about it, He has no intention for any of His children to fail in their walk with Christ. You may fail in the world's eyes. You may fail uh, relative to the standards of success that humanity places upon our culture and upon our society, but God intends for every one of His children to be a successful Christian, to live for Jesus Christ, to do things for Him, to serve Him. As I read this passage, I find the intention for which God saved us. Paul talked about this intention in Philippians chapter 3 when he said, if that I may apprehend, listen carefully, that for which also I am apprehended. Paul said, God saved me with a purpose. He apprehended me with something in mind. Paul says, I'm trying to apprehend that for which I am apprehended for. Paul said, I'm trying to be what God wants me to be. I'm pressing toward for the mark of the prize of the high calling of God in Christ Jesus. I'm not satisfied just to float down the middle of the road, is what Paul was saying. I'm not satisfied just to stumble from day to day. I want bigger things. I want greater things. My life may end in a prison cell, but when I pillow my head on the execution, Block, and when I pillow my head into eternity, into the glorious presence of God, I want to open my eyes and hear God say, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. Paul said, I don't want to live like everyone else lives. I don't want to do what everyone else does. I want to do what God would have me to do. And in this passage, I want us to notice three things this morning that are spoken of or implied in our text that we've read. Here Moses is, and he's standing there uh, in the plains of Moab. They're uh, getting ready. Moses is about to die. Joshua will lead them into the promised land. And the book of Deuteronomy is the retelling of the law and of the wanderings of the nation of Israel. And 40 years have passed, and here he is, and he's telling them about all that has come to pass. An old generation has died. A new generation has been 
been raised up. And he's recounting what God has done uh, to these young people. And in the midst of this, he says, there's going to come a time when people are going to ask you what this book of the law is all about. There's going to come a time when people are going to look at you. And I kindly think that we're living in that time, don't you? There's going to come a time when people are going to say, what is it about that old book that's so special to you? What is it about that old bloody book, that old black back Bible? Mine's brown, amen, but it don't matter. Uh, what is it about that old book that's so precious to you? Why do you make such a big deal? Listen now, why do you make such a big deal about the King James Bible? What is it about that old book that is so important to you? I'll tell you what's so important about this old book. It reminds me of the amazing deliverance that God did in my life. See, I was in the same shape they were. Notice we see that there is a place of bondage. That's what it says here. It says we were bondmen in the house of Egypt. Now, you know what a bondman is. It's not a bail bondsman, amen. That's what, uh, if your mind went to dog the bounty hunter, your carnal is an old goat, amen. No, it's not talking about bondmen, this uh, bail bondsman this morning. But what it means by the term bondman is someone that's a slave. I don't know if you're aware of this. I think if you're born again, you probably are aware of this. And if you're lost, you need to be made aware of this. But do you realize that every single man, woman, child born into this world is born as a slave to sin? We had no choice. We had no uh, decision in the matter. Some folks say, well, I did good things. You may have done good things, but you never did righteous things. You can only do righteous things with the righteous intention, and that's only for the glory of God. A lost person can't do anything righteous. They may do something moral. They may do something that uh, society applauds and appreciates, but they are literally slaves to do what their flesh commands them to do. They know only to live, to feel, and to die. That's all they know. Eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. That's all that they know. And when I was lost in my sins... Now listen now, some of y'all, if you're, if you're a visitor here, you're, this is the part where I'm supposed to tell you about how that I was a drug addict, how that I was a drunk. This is the part where I was, I'm supposed to tell you about times I was in prison. Uh, but I'm not going to tell you about that. You know why? Because I never was. You know what I was? I was a lost 10-year-old boy going to the same devil's hell as the drug addict, as the drunk, going to the same devil's hell... As the worst person that you've ever met, I was in that bondage even as a 10-year-old church kid, lost and undone. I was a slave to sin. And some of you that God saved out of a miry clay that you're more conscious of than many young people are when they're saved, some of you that got down into the hog slop, some of you that know what it is to be in those jail cells, you know what it is to have that needle in your arm, you know what it is to wake up the next day knowing, not knowing what the night before held, some of you can testify that God saved you out of that slavery too. Only difference, the only difference is that I, that God saved me at a younger age than He did others. Let me give you a little piece of advice. Those of you who got saved at a young age, it's disheartening sometimes. I'm being honest with you. Because you hear older people and they tell stories about, about how wicked and how rotten they were. And you think to yourself, you know, I never was that way. Uh, let me tell you something. If you've got two folks and they're shooting a gun... Uh, and one of them's just, I mean, just a millimeter off in his aiming. You don't notice it all that bad the closer the target is. But the further you push that target out, the more you see. Let me tell you the difference between some of these young people, the difference between me. It's not where I was and where God brought me from. It's where I was and where a lot of them that never met Christ are today. I can give you testimony about young people that I knew, that I went to school, that I went to church with, that to this very day their life is a wreck. And the only difference between me and them is the grace of God. It's not me. I was in that place of bondage, and you were in that place of bondage. But notice, secondly, we see the place of bondage, but we see the perception of our burden. 
As you study through it, I'm going to go ahead and tell you, we're going to be all over the book of Deuteronomy here in a moment and some places in Numbers and, and Exodus. And, and who knows, I may take you to Matthew before it's done. You don't know. Amen. That's the excitement of coming to church here. You don't know what I'm about to say. Amen. Sometimes I don't either. But I, <laughs> I see when I study the history of the nation of Israel, if you go back in Exodus chapter 3 to the burning bush, and if you find that Moses, who had been 40 years on the backside of the desert, tending to the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, you didn't know Jethro was a Bible name, did you? Amen. You thought that was a Beverly Hillbilly's name, but it's a Bible name. Uh, whenever he was tending the flock of his father-in-law Jethro, the Bible says that he looked aside and he turned aside to see a great sight, uh, that a bush was burning but was not consumed. It wasn't a great thing that the bush was burning. That's common in the desert uh, because of the high temperatures for these dry and arid bushes to burst into flames. It ain't nothing in this world to see somebody on fire. Listen, it's nothing to see somebody in this world. You'll see sports fans on fire till their team starts losing. Right? You'll see politicians on fire till they get elected and get to Washington. You say, what was significant about this bush? That it was burning but not consumed. A perpetual fire. Only the believer can have that perpetual fire. Uh, that's the fire of the Holy Ghost that lives within us, that indwells us at the moment of salvation, that no matter what we try to do in the way of denying Him, He doesn't deny us. That was what Jeremiah was talking about when he said uh, that I tried to uh, hush my mouth, I tried to be quiet, I tried to give up. There I was in shackles, and he said, I'll not speak anymore, I'll not preach anymore, I'll not say anything anymore. He said, but I felt the fire of the Word of the Lord shut up in my bones. I felt God. God deep within me, and I couldn't keep quiet. Moses turns aside to see this great sight, and God begins to speak to Moses. And he tells Moses, says, take your shoes off, you're on holy ground. He begins to talk to him about what's going on with the nation of Israel. And listen to what he says. I found this interesting. Uh, the Bible says in Exodus 3, verses 9 and 10, Now therefore, behold, listen, the cry of the children of Israel is come unto me. And I have also seen the oppression wherewith the Egyptians oppressed them. Come now, therefore, and I will send thee unto Pharaoh, that thou mayest bring forth my people, the children of Israel, out of Egypt. You see, God perceived their burden. God saw their need. God knew where they were. God knew what they needed. Can I tell you that when mankind was lost in depravity and in sin, that God as our eternal creator, listen now, as our eternal creator, God could have snuffed every one of us out, sent us straight to a devil's hell, and never had to even so much breathe an apology to us because He's God. He's God. We have this idea sometimes, oh, God's so unfair for sending people to hell. Well, listen now. First off, God, God wants you to stay out of hell so bad that He sent His only begotten Son to die for your sins. He didn't make hell for you. It's prepared for the devil and his angels. If you go to hell, you'll go to hell at the protest of God Almighty. But secondly, if God wanted to do that, He has the right to do it. He's God. We can shout at the heavens, we can shake our fists towards God's face, but He's still God, nevertheless. But that's not how God did mankind, is it? He saw them in their lost condition, in the depravity of their own choice and their own will. What does the Bible say? Just as God had sent Moses, and Moses was a type of Christ. Uh, the Bible says, Moses made this statement, said that a prophet like unto me shall the Lord raise up unto you. The book of Acts makes it clear that that prophet like unto Moses, that was the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Moses was their deliverer. In fact, if you ask a Jew to this very day, an Orthodox Jew, you say, who was the greatest Jew uh, that ever lived? Everyone would expect them to say Abraham. They won't say Abraham. Most of them will say it was Moses for he. 
was our deliverer. Can I say that when humanity was lost in sin, God sent a deliverer. God sent His only begotten Son to save you, to save me. We didn't deserve it, nor did the nation of Israel. But when the heart of humanity said, we need salvation, God said, I'll send my Son to be your salvation. We see the perception of our burden. But I see a third thing. You ain't even seeing it in Deuteronomy, but I'm seeing it there. I see not only the place of bondage, I see the perception of our burden, but I see the provision of the blood that took them out of Egypt. We're talking about this amazing deliverance this morning. We're talking about how God with a mighty hand brought them out of Egypt. The Bible says in Deuteronomy chapter 6 with great signs and wonders. You say, preacher, what were those signs and wonders? They speak of the ten plagues that God sent upon uh, the uh, nation, uh, the empire of Egypt. And we won't go through all of them this morning. Uh, You say, why is that, preacher? Because it wasn't the frogs that brought them out. It wasn't the lice that brought them out. It wasn't the bulls that brought them out. Uh, There's lots of folks want to talk about the miracles of Jesus Christ in in this day that we live in. They want to talk about all the miraculous things that He did and that He's able to do. Can I say that bless His name that we do have a miracle working God. But this morning, it's not His miracles uh, that's going to make a difference in your life if you're lost and undone. The difference will be made by the blood, for it was the blood that brought them out of Egypt. There in the midst of that night, God had proclaimed that the death angel would pass through Egypt. And every single house... I was watching a thing. Well, I'm not going to get sidetracked. I want to. You know, preachers, they spend all their time on the sidetracks. But that night in Egypt, God would send his death angel through that would claim the life of every firstborn, not just of the Egyptians, but of the Israelites too. Any that did not have the blood that had been applied to the lentils and to the posts of their door. Only through the blood of that precious lamb could they find salvation. And in this day that we live in, can I say that if you're going to get in, you'll get in by the blood. If you're going to be brought out, you're going to be brought out by the blood. There's nothing else that can do it. God didn't ask the nation of Israel to take a big roll of all their names and to be baptized. God didn't ask the nation of Israel to get and work in the soup line. God didn't ask the nation of Israel to change the way they look, to change the way they dress. You say, preacher, are you against soup lines? Are you against people? dressing right and all. I'm not against those things, but I'm against anybody thinking that those things can get them to heaven because there's only one way that you're going to get to heaven. The Bible says, for as much as you know that you were not redeemed with corruptible things such as silver and gold, were seen uh, from your vain uh, conversation from the traditions of your fathers, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ as the Lamb, without spot and without blemish, the only way you'll get in is through the blood. I see an amazing deliverance that's talked about. And if you're saved here, you've had an amazing, you've got an amazing testimony if you're saved. Some of you say, but preacher, I was never like them that was in the jail cells. I was ne-. It took just as much for God to save you as it took for God to save them. It took just as much. That blood was just as precious for you. You may have been saved as a little child in a vacation Bible school. You may have been saved in a children's church like what we've got going on this morning. You may have been led to the Lord by a Sunday school teacher just as a little boy or as a little girl. But don't you ever be ashamed of that testimony for it took the blood to get you out just as it took the blood to get the drunkard out, just as it took the blood to get the drug addict out. The same blood was needed for you to be saved. You have an amazing testimony. We see an amazing deliverance that's talked about. But I see not only an amazing deliverance, I see an avoidable detour. 
Listen carefully to what's said in, in this passage. Uh, the Bible says, in fact, I'll tell you what, turn with me to Deuteronomy chapter 1. Deuteronomy chapter number 1. And I want to read to you something that I find very interesting. And I was going to read this later on in the message, but we'll read it now. I believe it would be the will of God. Deuteronomy chapter 1. And I want you to notice the emphasis that God placed on this truth. Verse number 1 says, These be the words which Moses spake unto all Israel on this side Jordan, in the wilderness, in the plain, over against the Red Sea, between Paran and Tophel and Laban and Hazeroth and Dizahab. Notice verse 2. There are eleven days' journey from Horeb by the way of Mount Seir unto Kadesh Barnea. Look at in the next verse. And it came to pass in the fortieth year, in the eleventh month, on the first day of the month, that Moses spake unto the children of Israel according unto all that the Lord had given him in commandment unto them. Now, some of you say, Preacher, why did we just read that? There's some, some names of places that may have rung a bell to you, but immediately it doesn't click in your mind what we've just read. Now, here Moses is. He's come to the end of his life. He's getting ready to turn things over to Joshua. He's going to go up into Mount Pisgah and he's going to die. From Mount Pisgah he will see the promised land, but he will never enter in. Forty years have passed, forty approximate years have passed since they have set foot on that dark night that the death angel had passed over out of Egyptian darkness and into the wilderness. The Bible tells us in this passage that from Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, the place of the giving of the law, unto Kadesh Barnea, that it's 11 days' journey. And you say, why is that significant? You may remember Kadesh Barnea, for it's spoken about in Numbers chapter number 13 uh, when the Bible talks about the sending forth of the 12 spies. You see, when they had left uh, Egypt, they went down to Mount Horeb, they received the law, and immediately they made a beeline for the promised land. And there at Kadesh Barnea, in the wilderness of Zin, they sent spies in. They were just on the cusp of entering the promised land to go in and to spy out the land and to see what it was And they come back and they deliver an evil report. They say, we can't go in. It's impossible. There's no way. You know what that tells me? That tells me that a trip that could have taken two weeks approximately. The Bible says in the 40th year, Moses spoke these things. This is where most Christians are at in the day that we live in. Most Christians are wildering, wandering. I'll get it here in a second. I ain't speaking in tongues. I just get tongue-tied. Amen are wandering through the wilderness of apathy and mediocrity. They're doing exactly what the nation of Israel did. Oh, there's a wilderness that must be passed through. Some say, well, you know, a person gets up from the altar, they ought immediately everything in their life be right. No, there is a wilderness to wander through. There is a place. There is a journey. I'm aware that after a person gets born again, uh, that they do need time to grow in grace. They don't need time to grow in carnality or in worldliness, and that's what I fear we're saying a lot of times. But they do need time to grow in grace. I don't expect everybody gets born again to rise up out of the altar and immediately be ready to go to a mission field or uh, go and plant a church or uh, become a Sunday school teacher. There was a journey that had to be made, but that journey was not supposed to be the rest of their lives. This older generation died in the wilderness. They spent, they got saved. Listen now, they got saved. Tell me you've not heard someone say this in your life. They got their ticket to heaven. And then they just spent the rest of their time waiting to board. Spent the rest of their life in mediocrity. 
Can I say to you that this is an avoidable detour? It's not God's will that we live this way. Let me give you three things very quickly. I believe that it's not God's will, number one, that we return into Egypt. You know, there was a certain group that after they had come out of Egypt, they didn't get very far in the wilderness. These must, these had, they had to be the Baptists in the group. I don't know that. You'll tear your concordance in two trying to find that. It's not in the Hebrew, but it just had to be the Baptists. Somebody said, we ain't seen a Shoney's in two weeks. And there was a group that said, why don't we turn around and go back? The Lord brought us out here to die. Well, listen now, that's up to you. There was a generation that died. That's up to you. Some say, well, I didn't know this was going to be the Christian life. I didn't know all these rules. Well, that's up to you how you live your Christian life. If you want to live your life in mediocrity, that's up to you. That's your choice. They said, God brought us out here that we might, that our wives and our children might become a prey. That's how I know it's Baptist, because you know what they said? They said, well, how's our family going to live under these rules? There'll be somebody out there that'll get that here in just a second. I can't ask my daughter to dress right. What if they get made fun of? What, by the harlots? I'd say it's probably a pretty good thing if they don't fit in with that crowd. What, you're telling me that that my wife and my children are supposed to act differently? Well, the Bible does say, Come out from among them and be separate, saith the Lord. Touch not the unclean things, said, I'll be a father to you. We We want that father relationship, but we don't want to be obedient children. It's not God's will that we return into Egypt. Let me tell you what a lot of Christians do. They get saved, and they're never discipled either because they refuse to be discipled or because there's no one around as spiritual enough to disciple them. And they get a little ways into You know what the Bible says? The Bible says that God did not lead the nation of Israel by the way of the Philistines, lest when they saw war they would want to return. And there's a lot of Christians that it's fine when everything's going easy, but then it gets tough. They say, boy, we miss the garlic, we miss the fish, we miss the onions, we miss the cucumbers, we miss the leeks in Egypt. It's not God's will that we live an Egyptian lifestyle. Some of you say, preacher, are you talking about eating? No, I'm talking about sin. You see, these were those that wanted to live in sin. And it's not. It's not. Oh, this is so simple. But if Christians could grasp this truth, not with their ears, but with their heart, it would change your life that it's not God's will for you to live in sin. I don't believe it's God's will that we return. But number two, I don't believe it's God's will that we rebel. Listen to what the Bible says very clearly about the nation of Israel. Why did they spend all that time uh, there in the middle of the wilderness? The Bible says in Deuteronomy 9-7, this is Moses talking to this new generation. He says, remember and forget not how thou provokest the Lord thy God to wrath in the wilderness from the day that thou didst depart out of the land of Egypt until ye came unto this place, ye have been rebellious against the Lord." Now, some of y'all want me to dismiss everyone but the teenagers while I preach about rebellion, right? Because adults, they don't get rebellious. It's just teenagers, right? That's what they tell y'all. Truth is, adults get just as rebellious. We just learn how to do it in a polite way. We're just as rebellious. 
We don't like being... You say, I don't know about that preacher. Next time you see someone pulled over, I know you're not supposed to do this. I know they want you to just move on. But, but just, just slow down and rubberneck for a second. Look at the look on someone's face when the police has pulled them over. And tell me that we do not have an inborn problem with authority. We sure do. And the nation of Israel was just as rebellious as any teenager you'd ever meet, you'd ever find. I think we're awful hard on teenagers sometimes when the truth of the matter is they just got more people telling them what to do than you've got telling you what to do a lot of times. Oh, you may still have authority in your life, but you don't have people telling you when you can go to the bathroom, when you can talk, when you can do this, what you can wear, and this and that and the other. And so young people, you know, they buck against that authority, and we say, oh, look at that teenager rebellious. And yet oftentimes... When the Holy Spirit of God touches our hearts and says, you need to get this settled. You need to get this right. No more excuses, Christian. No more. No more. Get it right. Live right. Do right. We say, Lord, that's not me. Nobody becomes a bigger liar than when invitation time comes. We'll sit and amen a sermon for 45 minutes. We'll sit and talk about, oh, preacher, that's truth. That's truth. That's truth. But then when the Holy Ghost looks at us and says, yeah, that's truth for you, we say, oh, wait a minute now. God will deal with us all through the sermon hour, and then all of a sudden we start lying when the invitation time. I don't mean lying to me. I mean lying to the Holy Ghost, saying, Lord, Lord, you wasn't dealing with Lord, I, it wasn't me. Lord, I can get it settled. Lord, we don't have to make a big deal out of this. And we get rebellious against the Lord. You see, the first thing was sinfulness. People live in a sinful lifestyle. But those that wanted to rebel, they were living that stubborn lifestyle. Stubbornness. Unwilling to let the Lord work in your heart and in your life. And what did it lead to? We see that it wasn't God's will that they return. It wasn't God's will that they rebel. But I'd say to you that it wasn't God's will that they remain in that wilderness. There's only one thing that's the will of God for your life, Christian, and that's to grow in the Lord. That's always the will of God. It's always God's will that you grow, that you love Him more, that you praise Him more, that you testify of Him more, uh, that you get closer to Him, that you read about Him more, that you pray to Him more. It's always God's more will for you to have more of Jesus Christ in your life. It's not God's will for you to remain. But for 40 years they stayed in that wilderness. Why? Why? Because the measure of your unbelief will determine the measure of your lack of progress. What happened to them? Here they came to Kadesh Barnea. Just days away. Just days away. And you know, that's kind of how the Christian life is. I, I know that Mr. Osteen talks about your better life now, uh, but I would have you to know that it's not about striving for your better life now. It's about recognizing that your better life is hid with Christ in God. The only way that you'll access that better life is through a closer relationship with Jesus Christ, not through a better job, not through promotion, not through a raise, not through a bigger house, not through a nicer car. That's not the victory that I'm talking about this morning. I'm talking about the victory of fellowship with Jesus Christ as God intended it to be. We find there at Kadesh Barnea <laughs> that they came back. They sent 12 spies out. Two of them came back and bragged on the Lord. And the other 10, they came back and their knees shook because of the enemy. And they said, we can't. We can't do it. They would not believe the Lord. Do you understand that because that the Lord said, all right, for as many days as you have walked through that land, 
you're going to wander that many years. For 40 days they had walked through the land and seen what God could do. God help us that have lived in a country where we've walked through the land for 40 days, where we've seen what God can do. God, help us to live in a country that has had the winds of revival to blow over it before. God, help us, some of you, in this place. You can remember times when the presence of God was so palpable, you thought if you closed your eyes, you could just reach out and touch Him. You know what God can do. You've seen the fruit of the land. And you'll be more accountable than some of these youngsters that have never experienced experience that we see in this passage that it's God not God's will that we remain in apathy not God's will that we be Sunday morning only Christians not God's will that our Bibles close after we're done with church on Sunday and collect dust until Wednesday or until the following Sunday. Not God's will that the prayer closet be a foreign country. Not God's will that we live in apathy and media. Not God's will that the only time we witness is when someone corners us into it. Oh, are you a Christian? Well, I've got to tell them now. <laughs> i got it, but I'm caught. Yeah, you go church somewhere? Yeah, yeah, yeah. God help us. Ain't no wonder churches suffer in the day that we're in. Most Christians act like they don't want to go to church. Why would a lost man ever want to? Not God's will that we remain. But I want to show you a third thing and then I'm done. We see uh, in this passage, uh, we see an avoidable detour. Moses has talked about their amazing deliverance. We've seen this avoidable detour, but I want to talk to you about an attainable destination. Here they are. Forty years has passed, and they're getting ready to go into the promised land. What will it mean for them? I wonder what it would mean for you if you quit being scared of Jesus Christ and scared of the Holy Ghost. I've never seen... We live in a day where most people are scared that if the Holy Ghost gets a hold of them, it's going to turn into wildfire. Do we not believe that God is not the author of confusion? I believe this morning that when it's spiritual, it's right. I believe when it's spiritual, it's scriptural. And I don't think we have to be afraid of worship. I don't think we have to be afraid of surrendering to the Holy Ghost and allowing Him to move. Oh, I know there's been plenty of preachers afraid they wouldn't be able to control it. Maybe it would be a little bit better if us preachers couldn't. I'd rather see you under spiritual control than pulpit control. Amen? But we find in this passage that God showed them some things about this promised land. Can I just give them to you just, just real quick? I want to say that first off, this was a place of abundance. place of abundance. It says in Numbers chapter number 13 that when they were walking through the land, that it was a land that flowed with milk and honey, and it was a place of figs and of grapes and of pomegranates. And the Bible says uh, that whenever they were walking uh, through the land that they saw clusters of grapes that were so large that they had to be carried by two different men, grown men, upon a staff. And they cut down these clusters of grapes and carried them and bore them upon a staff. And they named that place Eschol, which deals with the idea of fruitfulness. And they came back and those two, which was uh, Caleb the son of Jephunneh and Joshua the son of Nun, they said, this is a good land. This is a good land. <laughs> this is a good land. This is a good land. 
You grab hold of one of them Christians that's really got on fire for God and ask them what they think about it. They'll say, this is a good land. You grab hold of one of them praying mamas or praying grandmamas that's prayed their child or their grandchild out of the chains of bondage and into the glorious kingdom of God's dear son. Ask them what they think about Canaan. You get a hold of that family that's been healed and bonded back together around the family altar and the communion table and ask them what they think. Your problem is you've been asking the wrong spies about it. You've been asking the bittered up and the corrupted Baptist about it. You've been asking him that all they did was gripe and moan about it. You've been asking them what they thought about it and they said that land's full of giants. But you get a hold of that one that got that cluster of grapes and he'll tell you the truth about it. He'll tell you the truth about it. You get a hold of that one that's caught a glimpse and they'll tell you about it. You get a hold of Stephen as he stood there being stoned in the book of Acts. And here he is, rocks pelting the life out of his body. And they looked upon him and his face shined, his countenance shined with a heavenly glow. And he said, I see Jesus standing at the Father's right hand. You ask Stephen what he thinks about it. He'll tell you it's a good land. It's a good land. It's a place of abundance. It's a place where your marriage can be right. It's a place where your kids can be right. It's a place where your happiness uh, can be overflowing. Uh, it, it's a place where you can see victory. It's a place where your prayer life uh, can be uh, on fire. It's a place where your Bible can be living and jumping out of the pages at you. It's a good land. It's an abundant land. It's a land of abundance, but I see that it's a land of obstacles. There in uh, the book of Deuteronomy, and I believe it's chapter number 9. They say, In fact, let's read it. Let's read it. Sometimes I get preaching, and I think you want my preaching more than you want the Bible. I hope you always want the Bible more than you want my preaching. Look what it says in Deuteronomy chapter number 9, uh, verses 1 and 2. The Bible says, Hear, O Israel, thou art to pass over Jordan this day to go in and to possess nations greater and mightier than thyself, cities great, fenced up to heaven. A people great and tall, the children of Anakims, whom thou knowest, and of whom thou hast heard say, Who can stand before the children of Anak? Now you said, Anakims, that don't mean nothing to me. It would if you were them. For the Anakims were the giants. We think of a giant, we think of Bill, you know. That's what we think of. We think of some Bill Tall fella. But listen to what they said about these giants. They said, we were as grasshoppers in their sight. I know that the modern theologians would have us to believe that that's just allegory and poetry. But I don't believe it is. I believe we can't hardly fathom the terror that these Anakims were. See, it is a place of obstacles. You say, why couldn't Canaan be heaven? Because heaven ain't got no obstacles. Heaven ain't got no giants. Heaven ain't got no battlefields. The battlefield was Calvary and it's done. Heaven doesn't have any battlefields. But Canaan had battlefields. Canaan had wars and fights. Could I say, listen, if you're going to live this life, it may be an abundant place, but it's a place of obstacles too. It's not going to come easy. It's going to take... Hey, you might have to fight some battles. Listen, and this isn't popular, and I don't expect it to be what I'm about to say, but husbands, you may have to fight some battles in your home. You may have to. You may have to fight some battles to get your family and home right. Especially the longer you've let it go wrong, the harder it'll be to get it right. 
You may have to fight some battles. You may have to fight your flesh. In fact, I guarantee you will. You'll have to fight the world's influence. I'm aware of that. There'll be time. What did they say there gathered at the Garden of Gethsemane when they had fallen asleep? And Christ said, what, could you not watch with me one hour? And they said that the Spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. There'll be times like that where your spirit will crave to taste of the milk and the honey and the clusters of grapes, but your flesh will say no. It is a place of obstacles. You won't go out of here walking on cloud nine and trip into Canaan. It's not going to happen. It's going to take some discipline, take some, some determination, take making your mind up that you care more about God than you care uh, about uh, your leisure time, than you care about your vacation or your recreation. It's going to take time. It's going to take effort. It's a place of obstacles. You're going to have to make up your mind that you care more what God thinks than what men think. Make up your mind that you care more what's in that book than what's on Facebook. What, listen now. Let me preach it all of us here for a second. You're going to have to make up your mind that you care more about what's in that book than what's on the TV or what's on the computer. You say, preacher, are you against those things? I'm against anything taking over the place of preeminence that the Word of God deserves in the life of the believer. I'm not saying they're wrong. I'm saying they can become idols. You're going to have to make your mind up that you care more about this book than you do about your job. You're going to have to make your mind up that you care more about the house of God than you do about your recreation. Say, preacher, is it a sin to take? No, it ain't a sin to take vacations. But I know some folks on perpetual vacations, amen? I'm just saying it's going to take more. It's a place of obstacles. You say, preacher, how do we enter? How do we do it? How do we defeat these giants? Preacher, for all these years I've struggled. Preacher, for for 20, 30, some of y'all have been wandering more than 40 years. Preacher, how do I leave the wilderness? How do I go into the promised land? How does that happen? I'll give you one Final verse, and I'll close. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verse 1 says this. All the commandments which I command thee this day shall ye observe to do, that ye may live and multiply and go in and possess the land which the Lord swear unto your fathers. You see, Canaan is a place of abundance, and Canaan is a place of obstacles. Canaan is a place of obedience. And it's only through obedience that you'll realize and experience what that victorious life is. Well, it's not a place without battles. It's a place exclusively of battles. It's not a place all the time of ease, but it's the only place where you're in the will of God. I mean, it's time we just start... It's time we really start shucking corn the way it is. Listen to what I'm about to say. When we're not living in victory, we're not in the will of God. Some of you say that's a pretty high standard. The Bible says, be ye filled with the Spirit. Not you should be, not I hope you are, but a commandment. Be ye not drunk with wine wherein is excess. Oh, that's still in the Bible. Do you know that? Yeah. Be ye not drunk with wine wherein is excess, but be ye filled with the Spirit. That's the command of God. That's what God expects out of us. You say, preacher, are you telling me that you've already apprehended? Even Paul said, not that I have already apprehended. He said, but I follow after. If that I may attain. If that I may apprehend that for which also I'm apprehended. Paul said, I'm nowhere near perfect. I don't expect you to be perfect. And God don't expect you to be perfect on this side of heaven. 
But what he does expect is for you to strive, for you to make up your mind that you're not satisfied in the wilderness. Make up your mind, I'm not going to die here. I'm going to go on to greater things for Jesus Christ.